This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. We understand that some of our opinions will not be shared with many people and hope you can still bear with us in order to hear amazing Wisconsin-based stories. We are not licensed therapists or able to give legal advice by any means. Our show notes will provide all of our source materials included for each episode. Now Now on on to to the the show. Welcome back to All the Sins of Wisconsin. I am Fallon and I am here with Mims. How are you? I'm good. Um, I went to my friend's funeral today, so it's kind of weird, but we're, um, you know, getting through it, so here we are. Yeah, I bet that was really tough. It was, um, quick healing that he is definitely in a better place now Yeah, the whole gas thing is interesting because the gas companies just raise the prices because they have an excuse to raise the prices. So they suck. They, I heard that they are raising the prices because so we go through basically, you know what, I'm not gonna get into it because I feel like I'm gonna be wrong. So I'm just gonna leave it at that. <laughs> It's just, my opinion on it is like, yeah, I don't want to pay more gas. My Jeep costs like $90 million in gas, whatever, $70 to fill up for the week. Costs me a week with all this ridiculous driving. But I have a safe home. My kids are safe. We have food to eat. Yeah. We are not worried. My kids aren't outside with rifles trying to protect themselves or fleeing or living in a tunnel somewhere or any of that. So I'll pay the higher gas prices. Relatively easy life living right now compared to other people in different parts of the world. So $4 is, is annoying, but let's, 
I don't know. Let's think more broadly, I guess. Yes, I agree. It could definitely be worse. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't remember whose turn it is, but I do not either. Okay. Um, mine's going to be very long and very heavy. So how do you want to start? <laughs> you can start. Okay. We're going to dive in then. Okay. Okay. So like I said, this is going to be very heavy. Um, not that we typically come here for, uh, you know, like light material, like this is, but this is a, a particularly bad one. Um, I just want everybody to be aware and warn that my part of the episode um, involves child abuse and rape and other triggering subjects. So if you're not interested in hearing about this, um, I completely understand. So we will put in the show notes where mine ends and Fallon starts so that we can, you guys don't have to hear it this week. I, I'm not going to be offended. So uh, here we go. You ready? I'm ready. So this is the story of the, what they deemed as the necro serial killer. Have you heard of that? story. I have not. Okay. So Lorenzo Fain was born on April 2nd, 1971 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Lorenzo spent his childhood and adolescence in the northwestern part of the city, a region plagued with poverty and crime at the time. Uh, he was the oldest of five children of Juanita Fain Smith, and when she got pregnant with Lorenzo at age 18, she was already addicted to drugs and alcohol and sometimes drinking to the point of unconsciousness. So from the get, it was not a good situation, so it can, yeah. it's only going to spiral from here, so strap in. Okay. So Lorenzo's father left the family shortly after Lorenzo's birth. Uh, his father was treated in a hospital for post-traumatic stress related to his military service in Vietnam and has no memory of his ex-wife or Lorenzo. Um, so that's pretty intense. That's crazy. There. Yeah. Juanita uh, worked as a dancer and just did not know how to be a parent at the age of 18. You know, not a lot of people have time to have reality you know set in and she was just one of those people that was not prepared and maybe shouldn't have had kids to be honest yeah uh, I mean 18 is a hard age to have a kid at yeah I like can completely relate to that because my mom got pregnant with me at 18 and honestly if she would have waited until like mid 20s early 30s I, I think she would have been a better mom than what she was just because you're a kid still and you act out of emotions and you don't know what's what but then some younger parents thrive you know yeah uh so Juanita her form of discipline was beatings yelling and just degrading it, it really wasn't anything that you can form like a 
a forming mind. It wasn't anything that you could be like, okay, let me think about that. It was just, she was angry. She took it out on the kid whenever the kid was acting out or whatever. And just, you know, not ideal parenting. Yeah. And most of the time the beatings were severely on the head. Uh, she said that she didn't know it was harmful until she was told by a social worker and they, the social worker told her to stop. Um, which is like crazy that people just don't know that. Like, how do you not know that having like beating somebody in the head is really, really bad? I'm, I'm guessing it probably happened to her. I guess. Or around, or around her? Because why would you think that that was okay? Unless you've gone around don't know um so when Lorenzo was four Juanita remarried which did not bring more structure to the home the man also an alcoholic beat Juanita and Lorenzo with his fists sticks electrical cords and anything else that he could grab Juanita oftentimes would fight back hitting him once with a sledgehammer and one time stabbing him Wow, that's quite the relationship. It's a terrible, terrible life that was forcibly imposed on these growing children in the home and within this couple. Right. When Lorenzo was eight and wanted crackers from the refrigerator, his stepfather choked him until he passed out, which was witnessed by family members. So it's just like I said before, not an ideal place for children. No, definitely Um, not. And I'm going to preface this by saying, feel bad for the young boy that was Lorenzo, but not the adult Lorenzo. Oftentimes we think, okay, well, he went through all this stuff, but there's really, uh, I guess just, you should know better as an adult. You know, that's terrible yeah. that to a child, but. Right. And I always feel like once you grow up, you're responsible for what you, for who you are and what your life becomes, because a lot of people didn't have a great childhood. A lot of yeah. people went through a lot of trauma. A lot of people have seen a lot of fucked up things and they're still good people. True. So they even like make it a point to go the complete opposite direction. Yeah. So he was frequently subjected to beatings from which he suffered psychological trauma, which is no surprise. Uh, Tragically, in 1978, at the age of only seven, he was sexually assaulted by a neighborhood boy. His mom and his stepdad saw him bleeding, which I'm assuming was from one of his areas, um, but did not call the police. Instead, his stepfather took Lorenzo to the attic, stripped him, naked tied him to a pole and beat him as punishment for letting himself be raped and that was according to lorenzo's sister lawanda who still recalls hearing his screams in his in her head uh it's sad because you know you think about that neighborhood boy who wasn't that much older than him um he was probably also getting you know abused sexually because this isn't, this is learned behavior, obviously. A kid just doesn't automatically know 
like sexual things at young ages unless they're taught. So that also is heartbreaking. Exactly. Lorenzo and his siblings often roamed the streets of Milwaukee begging for food and stealing while their mother was suffering from her drug addiction. Um, Just not a lot of care, um, not a lot of attention. Lorenzo has claimed that his first conceptual, ooh, I'm sorry, I I combined the words, consensual (laughs) sexual encounter was at the age of nine, which is like, how how do you know how to do these things? Yeah. His first homosexual experience came at 11. So he was just probably from the first moment that he was assaulted, that's when the door opened, I'm assuming. Yeah. Perhaps due to him having homosexual tendencies, his mother thought that at one point he started acting a little weird um, at the age of 10, which is when he started having his homosexual encounters. And that, and that sometimes she would kick him out of the house because of it, which is also really disheartening because like, not only do you beat this child, you don't provide for this child, but this, he is also possibly gay, and then you kick him out. Like, that's just horrible on top of horribleness. At the age of 13, he was placed in a group home, and unfortunately, it seems like life and the system failed him over and over again as the abuse carried into the foster system He was raped by an older resident within a few days of being placed, and he was also having sex with other residents as well, and was deemed hyperactive and was given Ritalin, but it didn't seem to help him. Um, So from the age of 13 to 18, he was in and out of group homes, committing a variety of offenses in the homes, and during his releases, one facility said he would would make inappropriate sexual comments in group situations but I is that really a shock since he was since he was seven all he knew was you know violence and sex and abuse so it's kind of like yeah that's not surprising that he was making sexual comments yeah that's all he seems to know yeah at the age of 15 he was charged with robbery and battery and the beating of another boy the boy was beaten so badly as lorenzo kicked him in the face so he was pretty he was in pretty bad shape the other boy yeah in his teen years he spent a lot of times on the street often failing and skipping school after a while he truly lost interest and ended up just dropping out of high school between 1984 and 1989, he was arrested several times for robbery, burglary, assault, and auto theft, spending several years in juvenile prisons. Lorenzo gave me such Walter Earl Ellis vibes. Do you remember when I did? Yeah. Yeah, I just feel like they live such similar lives. A lot of serial killers lived really similar lives like that. Mm -hmm. It's like the recipe for a serial killer. Yeah, that's so, ugh. Anyway, while in prison, he was physically and sexually assaulted by fellow inmates, which just turns my stomach. During his incarceration, 
an IQ test determined his IQ to be between 68 and 75 points, calling him as borderline intellectually disabled. In 1989, after he was released from prison, Lorenzo left Milwaukee and moved in with his grandmother, Nellie Willis, in East St. Louis, Illinois, where he lived for the next four years. Nellie was the only kind and loving presence he had in his life, and he found comfort with her. Why didn't she step in sooner? I don't know. I think maybe it's because she lived in a different state. You know, she lived in Illinois, maybe. and he, they lived in Milwaukee. Um, so maybe he wasn't there for a lot of the things that were shaping him to be who he ended up being and just probably thought oh you know he's just into trouble or whatever yeah Um, I'm not exactly sure but on July 23rd 1993 Lorenzo's first came under suspicion for a much serious crime it seemed to police that he had graduated from burglaries assault and auto theft and it was to murder Uh, Faith Davis, a 17-year-old girl who lived next door from his grandmother's house, was found murdered. Faith had been attacked in her apartment during which she was raped and stabbed to death. Faith's body was found bent over a coffee table, her legs spread apart, her knees on the floor, and then, this is really bad, but it's uh, petroleum jelly seeped from her private areas. And she had numerous stab wounds to the back and upper chest. In order to erase the evidence, the killer set fire to the apartment, but was spotted by witnesses who later identified him as Lorenzo Fain. In addition to the witnesses, a police dog followed a trail of blood to his grandmother's home from the burning house where firefighters were putting out the fire. Which I'm like, I love that this dog was like, you know what? I got it, you guys. Right. So Lorenzo had gone to St. Mary's Hospital uh, for a cut on his hand that same night when police checked. No one named, uh, no one by the name of Fane had checked into the hospital. But paramedics said that they had picked up an Adam Smith at the Fane residence and had taken him to the hospital for what he said was a cut he received on a broken mirror. It didn't take long for police to learn that Lorenzo had used the false name of a neighbor who was in a juvenile detention at the time. So this Adam Smith could not have been the person as he was detained. So it was clearly an alias. Um, police soon arrived to interrogate him, and while examining his clothes at home, bloodstains were observed and later confirmed. Lorenzo was then taken to the police station where he would eventually confess to robbing Faith's apartment, but refused to admit any involvement in her murder or her sexual assault. Um, but his DNA was a match, so couldn't dispute that. No. August 4th, while examining fingerprints found at the crime scene at the Faith Davis's apartment crime scene, it was determined that it matched the ones found on a different body at a different crime scene. Oh, wow. 
the body of six-year-old, six-year-old Ari Hunt, a young boy who had been raped and strangled on July 14th, 1989, not far from Fane's grandmother's house. Um, Ari was found nude at the edge of a state park thrown down a ditch. Um, so this was a huge break for investigators and so they went to confront Lorenzo. Lorenzo confessed to luring him and Ari's cousin by asking if they wanted to make some money. Ari, a little six-year-old who didn't know you know like what making money entails of, accepted and followed to the nearby Frank Holton State Park. Late that same night, the cousin who didn't follow the man told his relatives about the encounter. Obviously, they were freaked out, and then they called the police, which ensued, a search ensued after um, they found out what happened. At about 2 a.m. the next day, police found Ari's body in the park near the viaduct that carries Interstate 255 into Centerville. The Centerville police called in the Illinois State Police Violent Crimes Unit, and its detective believed at the that time that they had a good shot at catching the killer. Um, first, the killer must have been familiar with the Parkside neighborhood because he had mentioned Ari's brother, or I'm sorry, cousin by name. So mm. he was clearly familiar with the neighborhood and who all lived there. Secondly, police found a bloody thumbprint on the inside of Ari's thigh, which is the DNA that matched um, when they were going through Faith's apartment. So day police investigators canvassed the neighborhood, taking fingerprints from every man who lived there. Um, Wow. Yeah, they weren't fucking around. No, they weren't. But Lorenzo had left town and went back to Milwaukee. So he was not fingerprinted at that time. Um, Investigators did not consider that they had a possible serial killer on their hands. And they definitely were not equipped with investigating or hunting a serial killer as they were, they are so rare and they just are not really studied, especially back then. They didn't really have much information on how to handle this type of case. Right. Um, and although they did not think it was a serial killer, there were two other small tri- children who were murdered in that same area that Ari was. So I don't know how you don't see a pattern in that, especially if they were the same age group, you know, like it's they didn't vary that far. Well, they tried to act like in Atlanta for the Atlanta child murders that it wasn't a serial killer and it wasn't like the crimes weren't related at all. I love that you said that because I know that's so that's freaky. Okay, so um, a person who especially thought this was Carl E. Officer Jr., uh, mayor of mayor of East St. Louis at the time, he stated that he did not see evidence of a serial killer. Um, And he stated, we're certainly not looking at anyone near an Atlanta situation, uh, alluding to the Atlanta child murderer, Wayne Williams, who was eventually charged with 21 murders. Um, The two other murders of the children in 
1989 were quickly solved though. So there was no ties between Lorenzo and these two murders. So that was, I guess, better. I don't know. I guess not really better, but not this serial I, killer, I guess. Yeah, I guess he wasn't wrong in his case. Right. Um, I just can't believe like they couldn't for the Atlanta child murders. Like, I can't believe that they didn't think that 21 and there was no similarities or there wasn't one person that was accountable for that. Yeah, I don't know what number they got to before they admitted that it was a serial killer. Mm. So according to Lorenzo, the motive for killing Ari was an inferiority complex that he had been struggling with. But he also stated that he killed Ari because he wanted to hear the sound of a neck breaking. So that's horrific. It is. So having power over someone that is smaller and unable to defend themselves was something that validated his inferiority. Infuri- oh my God, I can't. His complex. <laughs> um, so after his family learned about his confession, he his grandmother talked to him in late August. In the absence of a suspect, Ari's mother, Desi, stated she trusted no one. And when I would go places and see people, I would wonder if they had done it. And that's what his mother stated, which is- I would be the same way. Right. Just looking over your shoulder all the time. You're in the grocery store and like, you could be like, that person did it. And I don't even know. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to talk about Desi a little bit, uh, Ari's mother. Desi unfortunately lost all three of her children to violence and has learned to deal with tragedy for her eyes did still swell up when talking about Ari who was her youngest child um breaks my heart yeah that's horrible yeah Lorenzo at this point made a surprising decision he decided that it was time to come clean and made a full-blown confession on several other tragedies he then described on the matter of deaths on who they were and who they were. So I'm going to go into the other crimes. Okay. On March 20th, 1992, 14-year-old La- Latronda Dean was brutally raped and stabbed to death a total of 21 times. Lorenzo had been playing cards with a group of people, including Latronda, on the day that she died, Lorenzo followed her to the home where she stayed with a friend and listened to some music with her on the couch. When he went to get a drink of water, he noticed a knife in the kitchen, took it and forced Latronda into a bedroom. He raped her, stabbed her, then washed her body, possibly to remove any evidence, and then left her in the bathtub. On July 20th 1993 nine-year-old Fallon Flood was raped and strangled when Fallon was first discovered she was found on the floor of a high school locker room she had a belt tightened around her neck and her panties were at her ankles Fallon and another girl had been playing when a when Lorenzo approached them Uh, he told Fallon to follow him and told the other girl to just go away 
Fallon never came home and her mother, Gloria Flood, went looking for her at the school instantly. A gym teacher helped look for her and found her in the gymnasium locker room. Fallon's killing because of its nature and occurrence in a school stunned uh, that area of East St. Louis. A 5,500 reward was offered for finding the killer and police were under heavy pressure to find the person responsible. Lorenzo was working as a janitor at that school. Although he was questioned, Lorenzo was not the main suspect for some reason. Um, a boy named Charles King, who was 17 years old, was the main suspect. And it's really unfortunate because his IQ also measured at around 57. So he was, you know, not well equipped to handle this yeah. type of situation by himself. Right. Um, so he was also involved with the school and he fit the general description of the suspect. Uh, Charles King was arrested without ever being identified by the girl who was with Fallon and police questioned him for several days before he signed a confession. So this poor boy, 17 year old boy was basically, you know, targeted for being, you know, not mentally developed enough and then probably was under a lot of pressure by investigators God knows yep. what happened to him then. And then he ended up just caving and saying, I did it. Yeah. And it's crazy how often that happens with people that don't understand what's going on. Children often or young adults that have a diminished mental capacity. They're yeah. easy to manipulate. I agree. That's awful. It is. Uh, but according to some observers, Charles seemed unsure of what was going on around him, which is like, duh, yeah, he obviously yeah. was not able to yeah, help himself. Right. He had a low IQ, did not have anyone in his corner, didn't have an attorney, so he was getting fucked by the system really hard. Yeah. He would even ask jailers when his coloring books were going to arrive uh, at the jail, indicating what kind of maturity he had. Like, he, this was a child-minded young man, almost, yeah. and they didn't realize this, or maybe they just didn't care. So while this innocent man or young boy was sitting in jail for a crime he did not commit, Lorenzo was heading back to Milwaukee, as he typically did. Charles was released a year later, so he sat there for a whole year after Lorenzo confessed to the murder. Gloria Fallon's mother stated, for someone to hang you in a locker like you were nothing, my daughter was just a baby. He just took everything away from her. She made a settlement with the East St. Louis School District over her daughter's murder. The undisclosed amount is enough that she never has to work again. And the settlement, however, could never replace the life of the beautiful Fallon Flood. On June 25th, 1993, 17-year-old Glenda Jones was raped and stabbed to death. 
According to Lorenzo, she agreed to have sex with him, but said something snapped inside of him and he killed her. And then he decided that that wasn't enough and that he was not finished. He ended up having sex with her deceased body as well. All of the victims lived and were killed within a several hundred meter radius from the house in which Lorenzo and his grandmother lived. He was also suspected of killing another girl, 16-year-old Nicole Willis, who was raped and beaten to death a few hundred meters away from the St. Or from the East St. Louis High School on October 16th, 1989, which was clearly matching his MO. Right. But Lorenzo would not take responsibility and fully denied any involvement. And then DNA evidence eventually excluded him from the list of suspects. And Carlos Garrett was eventually convicted of her murder in 2013. So... For his trial, in early 1994, Lorenzo was put on trial for the murder of Ari Hunt and was found guilty by a jury. The prosecution painted him as a vicious child killer and demanded that the court impose a death sentence. Meanwhile, his defense attorney, John O'Gara, insisted on leniency towards their their client and that a life term were given instead of the death sentence. Um, why did he need leniency? I mean, I don't really believe in the death penalty, but I don't understand why he needed leniency. So he, they were trying to appeal to the jury's emotions by citing childhood abuse that he had suffered, which led to mental and emotional behavioral problems. Um, I feel like they typically go with that route, but yeah. I mean, if I was the lawyer, I would go with that route. Are we able to pause? So the defense witness, Nellie Willis, his grandmother confirmed what was said and testified in his defense. Um, I feel so bad for Nellie because she was hearing firsthand everything that Lorenzo did and she still stuck by him and only had loving words to say about him. She was always in his corner and her love for him did not waver even having all the facts. She was just, you know, saying that because of what he had gone through as a child that really messed him up, but he's a good person and that she loves him and basically was just trying to appeal to that soft side of him that she must have seen. Um, yeah. yeah. So he managed to remain calm for the majority of the trial, but upon hearing his grandmother's testimony, Lorenzo lost his composure and burst into tears. Aww. Uh, so I, I know. She must have been a really good lady. Yeah. A psychiatrist who was the trial's final prosecution witness testified that Lorenzo's personality was abnormal, but that he suffered no delusions or inability, inability to control his behavior and could not be considered mentally ill as defined by Illinois law, which I don't really agree with. He has a low IQ and abusive childhood that had 
caused him severe trauma. And I think he might have, you know, with being hit in the head so many times, I don't think that that really helped him. No. And his perception of what normal living is, I think, is truly fucked. Um, I don't think that anybody that goes through what he has gone through, I'm not saying that this is excusable and by any means, but that's all he's known. So for him to just be like, no, not really valid. I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, And you know what? Anybody that has the urge to murder or sexually assault somebody or has has the urge to have sex with a dead body they're mentally fucking ill like that they're not okay in the head no like it's one thing to know right and wrong but that doesn't mean like depending on what kind of brain damage and stuff he had if he had actually impulse control right which i don't think he did because in one of his confessions he said you know, I was there, we were listening to music, I looked over, there was a knife, and then I'm like, yep, I'm doing it. Like, nobody does that. No, no norm- that's not, that's not a normal mental state of mind. No, absolutely not. With evidence stacked overwhelmingly against him, Lorenzo's attorney opted for the insanity defense, which, I, yeah, that should have been the ultimate goal is the insanity defense. Yeah. He told the jury that Lorenzo was a tortured soul, the victim of a twisted, insane mind, which I don't disagree with. I really don't. No. In August, the the jury voted 11 to 1 to impose a death sentence, but as the decision was not unanimous, he was in, instead sentenced to life in prison without parole. The juror who spoke out on the condition of anonymity said the jury had informed the state's attorney that 11 of the 12 jurors were steadfastly in favor of executing Lorenzo for the murder. Um, This is a quote. So molten lava wasn't as hot as we were. Um, That was one of the jurors. Um, The juror refused to identify the lone holdout, which was the right thing to do so they were everybody yeah. was hunting to see like who was the one who didn't want to convict him to death um which i feel like is none of their goddamn business but whatever that's right you know, it being up to the jury is their decision so right the juror said the holdout had voted against the death penalty only because her pastor's son suffered from a disease that made him violent when a doctor suggested on the witness stand that Lorenzo might have the same disease, the holdout decided against the execution. The juror said the woman who held out should have notified authorities before the trial that her personal experience of knowing a violent person would have made her a poor candidate to sit on the jury. Which... It depends on what questions the attorneys asked her when picking her for the jury. If they didn't ask that question. Right. So Lorenzo showed no emotion when pronounced guilty. He had spent most of the trial staring down at the defense table besides the time that his grandmother spoke. Lorenzo even stated 
this may sound weird, but the things that I did, I deserve to die. I really do. So yeah, he knew he was, he was done. Yeah. He also stated that he was sorry for killing Ari, but said he could not bring him back to life. After his conviction, Lorenzo was sent to serve his sentence at the Menard Correctional Center in Missouri. Um, I don't know. I didn't see anything in this case on why he was transferred to Missouri, but I feel like in a lot of similar cases, it is due to people knowing the case all too well in that area and then harming someone who is a convicted child molester or murderer, like how we found in the Jamie Kloss case how they had to relocate him to, I think it was like Arizona or something like that. Yeah. Uh, He was soon put on trial for the murders of Latronda Dean, Fallon Flood, Glenda Jones, and Faith Davis. So they were not letting that go. Obviously, they convicted him of Ari Hunt, and he's going to go through round two on November 15th of 2001. The jury on this new trial recommended that Lorenzo Fain be put to death for the slayings of the four girls. Lorenzo, now 30 years old at the time, um, showed no emotion as a verdict was read by the St. Clair County Circuit Court Judge James Donovan. The jury reached its decision after about three hours of deliberation, so they knew from the get. <laughs> yeah. Judge Donovan set an execution date for May 15th. However, the death sentence would likely not be carried out, and it wasn't um, then because of a moratorium on the death penalty imposed by the governor at that time of George Ryan. The appeals process also would extend the date by years. Um, So Lorenzo, who was already serving a life sentence for Ari Hunt, also pleaded guilty for the four remaining murder charges against him in an attempt to avoid multiple trials and opportunities for prosecutors to win a death sentence. Juries spent a week viewing grisly crime scene photos and hearing testimony detailing the rape and murders of the four girls. They also heard psychologists testify about Lorenzo's own traumatic child of rape and abuse at the hands of his mother and stepfather. Uh, But Assistant State Attorney Lisa Lisa Porter stated that Lorenzo chose to kill. He knew exactly what he was doing every step of the way. There was no sympathy for his background and there was no excuses made. So he was ultimately sentenced to death, but then it was later reversed by that moratorium. Um, which was done in January 2003. Um, So for 157 convicts, their death sentences were commuted as well. And he was among those listed. So I do have a plot twist as if the story needed more mayhem. Um, Yeah. (laughs) In September of 2009, DNA submitted by the Milwaukee Police Department's Homicide Cold Case Unit brought closure to a murder that took place on September 15, 1989. Lorenzo was linked to the murder of 32-year-old Rita Scott, who was found partially clothed um, and in a pool of her blood near a loading dock in the 1500 block of West Cherry Street. 
her head had been smashed in with chunks of concrete and she had been sexually assaulted. This is really sad. Rita was a mother to three boys, age 11, five, and 11 months. On, mm -hmm. On October 27, 2009, Milwaukee investigators visited Fane Lorenzo at the Menard Correctional Institution. He told investigators he didn't remember the exact date that he killed Rita, but that he did remember killing her. As if it was just yesterday, he recalled what he did to her, which I'm surprised. Like he confessed to the other ones, but he did not confess to this one. Yeah, that's interesting. It makes me feel like there are other people that maybe he is responsible for that he never confessed to. Um, yeah. Just because I feel like, okay, a totaling Rita, that's six. I mean, he could have stopped there, but I feel like serial killers just are not ever done. Right. So he stated that he sneaked up behind Rita and bashed her in the head with a rock with such force that the rock broke in two. So investigators thought that he just kept hitting her with different rocks. He hit her so hard that it split the rock. Um, wow. He then dragged her body through a gangway between a factory and a house and continued to beat her with the chunk of rock he still had in his hand and then had sex with her when she was dead. He stated he regrets committing this homicide as well as the other homicides and that he is glad he is locked up because he would still be doing it if he were not. So I really do think that there could be other ones that he's just not confessing to. Yeah, I'm sure. Mazella Scott, Rita's mother, stated, we've all waited 20 years. We were very happy and relieved. Now my daughter can sleep in peace. I'm pretty sure. Rita Scott, uncle Mick, or I'm sorry, Mike Mitchell said his family never gave up hope that the killer would be found. We never gave up, but life went on. We said God would handle it, and they did. Needless to say, Rita's family was overcome with a sense of relief as her killer had been caught. So he ended up getting married to a woman from Wisconsin who contacted him in prison. He said he was said to still cause trouble and had been written up for altercations involving other inmates and attacking a guard. Uh, he's currently 50, still sitting in prison for everything that he's done. Uh, his actions and the lives he took left deep scars in their communities and families. And I'm just happy that the silver lining was him getting caught and not being able to cause any more harm. I'm going to, can you pause? Yeah. Thank you. Um, I didn't mention, I'm sorry, I didn't mention my sources in the beginning. Oh yeah. And then that's a wrap on, on my portion. So, um, I got my sources from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch newspaper and from, let me see, speaker.com, um, Wikipedia, of course, 
wickedweed.com, vocal.media.com, and murderpedia. Awesome. Good job. I hadn't heard about that. Me neither. And I, I really don't understand how we don't hear about all the horrific shit that goes on here. <laughs> Every week I say the same thing. I know. I don't know either. So today I'm going to tell the story of Chad Moore. Have you heard of him? No. All right. My sources today are unsolvedmysteries.fandom.com. It's like the wiki page for unsolved mysteries. True Crime Diva, Chicago Tribune, Reddit, of course, <laughs> LA Times, American Crime Journal, and unsolved.com. All right. Chad was born in 1971. Only child of parents John and Darla Dolly Moore it's hard for me to say for some reason <laughs> both of Chad's parents were entrepreneurs in Madison Wisconsin where the family resided his father ran a carpet and upholstery cleaning business and his mother ran a successful house cleaning service Chad graduated from La Follette high school on the far east side of Madison in 1989. Chad was a snowboarder and a champion BMX rider. He had hundreds of trophies he won for races and was an active member of the American Bicycle Association. It was only natural that he would get a job at a bicycle shop. And he went to work at the Village Peddler Bike Shop owned by George Godfrey earn money for his planned move to Denver, Colorado. Being a BMX rider and a snowboarder, he's like, yeah, I need to go to Colorado. Yeah, absolutely. That seems like the right move. Yeah, definitely. So May 19th, 1990s seemed like just any other day. Chad stopped home for lunch at his family's apartment, made some sandwiches, he's going to go back to work, borrowed $20 from his dad to put gas, Dad, the yellow 1968 Ford Mustang, which he regularly drove. And after he left, he said he was heading back to the bike shop. Later that day, Chad's parents went into town and went to the hardware store, which is just a couple of doors down from the bike shop. And when they got there, they noticed that the yellow Mustang was not why didn't Chad go back to work? Right. So they stopped in and asked, like, hey, where's Chad? And the store was really busy. And everyone was like, yeah, I don't know where he is. And is he, like, typically responsible and he's not, like, a flake? Yeah, no, they didn't say anything about him being flaky normally. And it seemed odd that he just stopped home to get lunch to go back to work and then didn't go back to work and it was only his second day at work at this job oh yeah no <laughs> I mean I've had jobs that I flaked on the second day when I was a teenager <laughs> but like, I wouldn't go do it here I probably would have just stayed home then that went yeah, back right. yeah so his parents thought it was kind of odd nobody noticed that he didn't come back to work which I do too. Yeah, like what the hell? 
And then he didn't come home that night. And then they didn't hear from him for the next two days either. No. No. Then on May 21st, a maintenance worker for a new housing complex in a rough Southside Chicago neighborhood pulled up to access the garage the maintenance people utilized to store equipment. So they're building this housing complex, or it was just built, and they had these garages there where they kept all the stuff they needed to maintain the apartments. Mm-hmm. So the maintenance guy pulled up to the garage. He noticed that the lock, like the padlock, had been broken off of the door. So he's like, hmm, I should probably check this out. So he opens up the door, he looks inside, and he finds Chad's yellow Mustang. Hmm. And inside the car, Chad was found deceased, slumped over in the car. The keys were still in the ignition. The car had ran out of gas and the battery had died from the car being left running inside of the garage. Chicago police quickly ruled Chad's death a suicide, specifically due to carbon monoxide poisoning. Okay. The keys in here, the car had been running, clearly suicide. His family was devastated, obviously, and confused as to why Chad would kill himself and even more lost of how he ended up in Chicago and why he would drive from Madison to Chicago to kill himself in the middle of the work day. Yeah, that makes no sense. So they're like, I don't know what's going on, but you know, this is what the police department is saying. This is what the right. medical examiner is saying. So you just kind of go with it, right? What else can right. you do? Question the people in authority. Right. So they begin planning his funeral and then they had his body returned to the funeral home. And once that happened, the funeral director was like, there's something kind of fishy going on here. So then the family, the family goes to view the body and he had marks and bruises on his face, his upper body, all in his groin area and his knuckles were skinned to the bone. Oh, like he had clearly been in quite a fight. Yeah. Like he was beating somebody off probably. Yeah. That's what it sounded like. And that's the first thing the funeral director thought was like, there was some kind of altercation. This was Mm -hmm. not a simple, I went in my car and committed suicide situation at all. And then he showed them Chad's clothes, which also got sent with and they also showed evidence of a serious altercation. His pants had marks on them, which suggested he had been dragged somewhere. And his t-shirt was covered in blood. Yeah, how did they think that this was a suicide? Like, what the fuck? I don't, I think that was just an easy answer. Did they even look at him? It doesn't even seem like they even looked at what he, his body and his clothes were saying. It it really doesn't look like that at all. So Dane County Sheriff's Department was notified and they said, you can go ahead with the funeral, but you need to hold off on burying him because we need to do an investigation. So Dane County contacted Chicago, like, there's something obviously wrong with the conclusions you came to here. Yeah. 
So the one of the first things they did was request the autopsy and crime scene records from the Chicago Police Department. And once Chad's parents got to look over the photos, they quickly noticed something out of place. There was a windbreaker jacket in the car on the seat, and they said it didn't belong to their son. They clearly remembered asking Chad if he wanted a jacket before he left. Like, you know, how parents do. Like, don't you think you should take a jacket? I'm yeah. good for that. Like, uh, yeah. where's your coat? Mm-hmm. Mm. Teenagers are always saying, I don't need a jacket. They like never so, want to wear like protective clothing and it like I'm acting like I'm 50 years old but like no I, I feel the same way yeah I have a co-worker who's like freshly 18 and he never wants to wear a jacket even on the coldest day he's like wearing a sweatshirt and then that's it I'm like yeah kid, kids don't wear kids don't wear jackets I don't know what it is weird so his parents are like yeah that's not his jacket he didn't want a jacket somebody else was clearly in the car at some point Mm-hmm. leaving their jackets behind like what the fuck yeah but unfortunately Chicago police had misplaced the jacket so it was never tested for evidence that sucks and Chad's parents noticed in the pictures that the window of the car was covered in smudged bloody prints and these prints were also never examined shoddy that's shoddy police work yeah then the autopsy report showed that the levels of carbon monoxide in chad's blood were 74 percent a level that could only be reached if chad was unconscious while inhaling the fumes if he had been conscious the levels would have been maximum 50 to 60 percent it has something to do with the deep breaths that you take when you're unconscious Oh, compared okay. to like normal breathing, like normal breathing, you're breathing in a little bit. It's enough to kill you, but it's not going to like saturate your blood the same. If you're unconscious, I guess the levels get much higher. Mm-hmm. So they're like, yeah, this, there's no way it was carbon monoxide poisoning by right. itself. Something mm-hmm. else contributed to this. So then Chad's boss at the bike shop was interviewed by a local newspaper, and he indicated that he thought Chad seemed scared leading up to his death. But Chad's family said they didn't observe any changes in Chad. And like I said earlier, he only worked there for two days, so I thought that was really weird. Like, how do you notice that he's acting scared and he just started working for you? I literally was just thinking that. I'm like, okay, two days in and like, you know everything about this man? Yeah, I read a bunch of different sources to make sure I was getting the two days at the job right. Because I was like, this this sounds weird. Yeah. So after he said that, and the article was published, right shortly after that, someone shot up the front windows of the bike shop, like a drive-by shooting, the front windows of the bike shop. But the police claim that this was not in any way related to the article or to Chad's death. Who gets just mad was at a, a random shop? coincidence. Yeah, like I feel like the a bike shop is the most like easygoing, calm place, and you're gonna yeah. Shoot who a just bicycles everywhere? Not angry people. No, not at all. They're like the most probably, I don't know, like kind people out there thinking about the planet and their bodies and exercising. Like what? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. 
But all of these things put together were enough to change Chicago PD's minds, and they officially changed the cause of death from suicide to undetermined. Undetermined. Yep. Soon the police began to hear that Chad was involved in drugs. His parents admitted that he smoked too much marijuana, which is how I imagine most people at a bike shop. Did you like that? Did you like that? (laughs) Yeah. And and that he, I thought it was funny. They didn't say he smoked marijuana. They said he smoked too much marijuana. And that he had taken some LSD at some point in time. Which, I mean, it was 1990. Yeah, and like, who hasn't There's a lot of LSD. Who hasn't dabbled in dropping some acid on like a casual Saturday? Like what? You're telling me, mister? (laughs) Yeah, in Madison. Mm, I don't think so. (laughs) I don't think so either. However, the toxicology results from the autopsy did not show any trace of drugs or alcohol in his system. Boom. So he obviously wasn't using too much marijuana, or it would still be there. Because <laughs> it stays there forever. <laughs> oh my God. But then a friend came forward and said Chad had told her that he had once transported marijuana across the city of Madison. These are not my words. That sounded so stupid to me. (laughs) No offense to the friend, but like he's transporting marijuana across the city. Like, did he bring a bag to his friend or? Right. He probably just bought like a, (laughs) you know what? I'm going to (laughs) stop. Oh, man. All right, let's move on. And that he had driven a drug dealer to Milwaukee on two separate occasions. I want to know if this was a real drug dealer or if this was, once again, like, a weed thing. Yeah, like, get over it. Yeah. So then in October 1990, they still don't have any leads, so they did a Crime Stoppers episode, and they aired a segment about the case, and a tip came in saying that Chad had met some people involved in drugs in his apartment building. These people were supposed to have moved to Madison from Chicago. The police were able to locate three men that fit that description, and they didn't find any real connection to Chad that they ever released, but they did say one of the people would go on to be sentenced to 27 years in prison for a separate crime. Mm-hmm. Okay. Despite all these rumors, there was never any conclusive evidence he was involved in a drug trade of any kind. Right. So the biggest mystery and most likely the missing piece of this story is why Chad was in Chicago. Yeah. Like he skipped going back to work and drove 150 miles away and no one has ever come forward to say why. And that seems so strange to me. I was all about like jumping in the car and going places when I was a teenager and we didn't have cell phones. Yeah, Yeah. but somebody knew where I was. Right, yeah. And I just feel like that's just so crazy to do. Like all of a sudden- you're at work and you're just going to go get some lunch and then you just decide to go to a different state that makes absolutely no sense no and it made no sense to me that people were acting like he was like involved in like a serious drug trade but he had to borrow 20 dollars for gas (laughs) what the fuck 
No. Because people like to make it seem like maybe he got robbed when he got there. Like it was a setup. They told him to bring this money. And then when he got there, they beat him up and they took the money. And then they threw him in the car to sleep it off. And he died. I mean, I could He just borrowed $20 for gas. He's not, he's not balling. No, no. I can see where like maybe a random person would be like, I'm going to rob this guy. And then turns out like he has no money. And then like, you're already robbing him and you might as well like just finish it or whatever. I can see that, but not like him involved in this elaborate weed selling ring. Like, what? no, that makes no sense. No, because why even get the job in the first place then? Right. So I don't know. So his parents, the Moors, have never given up on finding out what happened to their son. They've won on Unsolved Mysteries. Wow. So this was an episode of OG episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Did you know that Matthew McConaughey has been on Unsolved Mysteries? I did not. I think I'm pretty sure that's a fact. I'm going to look it up later. I love him. So they lobbied lawmakers. They've knocked on doors. They've done like phone tip lines, kept track of calls and all the information they've received over the years. And they haven't gotten any information. Like the theories really aren't great. Most of them revolve around Chad going to buy drugs. But like I said, what is he going to buy drugs with if he doesn't have gas money? Right. And I really think that's odd that no one at Chad's job noticed that he was gone and that his boss didn't call to follow up and either fire Chad or give him a warning or something. Right. When you're a teenager and back in the day when you didn't have cell phones, your job was calling your house phone and telling your parents that you didn't come to work. I know because I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, she ditched out on work. Do you know, is she sick? Yeah, she's she okay. Quit? Like, yeah. Yeah. You're either going to be pissed off or concerned. You're not going to just be like, oh, my brand new employee just decided not to come back after lunch. Oh, well. Yeah. That doesn't make much sense. No. So it makes me wonder if it's possible that he knew that Chad wasn't going to be coming back and didn't want to tell the parents. Yeah. I think that. And the fact that his shop got shot up is also very alarming to me since it was so like close in like time. Mm -hmm. It just makes me feel like there's something there. That's what I think too. Mm -hmm. So I looked him up on CCAP, of course, the owner, and he did have felony charges in 1976 for reckless endangerment first degree reckless endangerment but the records from 1976 aren't very detailed so I can't really see like what happened what he was sentenced to I can just see that him and two other men all got these first degree reckless endangerment charges in 1976 so I don't know if he went to prison what like a reckless endangerment charge could entail I can let me look and tell you what the statutes are. Because <laughs> reckless endangerment can be anything like almost murder. Right. That's why I'm like, let's see what Wisconsin says. 
if I can give you correct information. Whoever recklessly endangers another's safety under circumstances which show utter disregard for a human life is guilty of a class F felony. Let's see, what would be an example? utter disregard. Okay, one example would be if it, this is coming from eisenberglaw.org. <laughs> An go. argument erupts between two family members at a backyard barbecue, the situation escalates and one of the people involved in the argument starts to leave the location, but then is overcome with emotion, pulls the gun and fires back at the party. Even if no one is harmed, the person could still be facing reckless endangerment charges because there was a chance that someone could have been seriously injured or died due to the actions. So, so it could be like something blanket, like that. Yeah, like a blanket statement saying like they did something that could have caused severe damage or severe harm to somebody, even though it did not result in you know like a death or an assault or whatever it could have and that's often how they charge out overdose drug crimes now in wisconsin i was just thinking that that's usually a reckless homicide by delivery of narcotics right that's usually really, how they yeah it wasn't their like intent but their actions yeah. caused it to happen yeah, reckless basically means you didn't mean to do it, but you should have known better. Right. Okay. So I've seen it in different cases for different things. like, And they might plead down from something more serious to that if there's a deal in place. Right. So it's hard right. to say. Yeah. So I'm not sure what they did, but it was this guy, the owner, and two other men that got the same charge from the same incident. So the three of them did something. And then fast forward to this time and he is owning a bike shop and it's getting shot up and his employee is murdered. Yeah, there's something so, going on. And now he ended up filing bankruptcy for defaulting on so much money, like hundreds of thousands of dollars of loans. Ooh, that's scary. Yeah. That's all I know. So nobody has any idea what happened. That's why I was on Unsolved Mysteries. It's still unsolved. No one can figure out why he was in Chicago. Not one person has ever come forward and said they knew he was going to be there or they were going to see him that day. Nobody ever said they talked to him that day. Like there's just absolutely no information about why he was there, what possibly could have happened. It just baffles me that somebody can have all of this on their body, like this severe beating, and then end up in a different state and like all these different things that are just so random. And it just like, there's no answers ever. That just blows my mind. And it's so scary. It really is. Yeah. And I'm like, 
So I'm searching through Reddit, like maybe somebody knows something. Nobody, nobody knows anything. Yeah, I think maybe the only way that anybody could find out what actually happened if somebody like confesses or somebody that saw something says something about it now, but it just seems like a long shot, which is unfortunate. Yeah, I think like somebody has to know. Yeah. I mean, somebody did something, so at least one person knows, but. Right, right. I'm assuming maybe the shop owner knows something, but that's an yeah. assumption. Yeah, I don't know if he's even still alive. Hmm, okay. So I don't know. I feel like he had to have known something or he would have said something about him not being at work. Yeah, that's shady. Yeah, or he just doesn't care about his employees. Right. Yeah, that's all I got. Another unsolved mystery for you guys. <laughs> Troubling. <laughs> They're my favorite. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I got one thing. We have stickers now. Oh, yeah. They're super cute. Yeah. So they say wear short skirts. They save lives because they do. Um, so if you want one of these, they are $5. You can put them on anything you want and you will be cool. Yes. So you can DM us for a sticker or many stickers if you want. Um, you can email us, uh, direct message us for any stories that you have or want us to cover. Um, Follow us on Facebook and on Instagram. Rate, review, and subscribe. Yep. I think you covered it all. Thank you. I'm getting better and better. <laughs> you are. All right. And we love you guys. And we love you. So goodbye. <laughs> Bye. All the Sins of Wisconsin was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Fallon and Mims. Thank you so much to all of our listeners, supporters, friends, and family that continually allow us to do what we love. If you love our show as much as we love you, please give us a glowing rating and review. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to see what we are up to and email us your sinner tales at allthesinsofwi at gmail.com. Episodes of All the Sins of Wisconsin are available for free wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't, don't forget, forget, we love you. Love you.